environmentalism and conservationism are almost two synonymous words. However, there is a difference. I would describe environmentalism as the active attempt to protect the environment and conservationism as the more passive attempt by trying to keep things the way they are. For a long time, both considered part of the small c conservative political movement, with conservationism and conservatism both etymologically from the same Latin word conservare, to conserve, which means to keep, guard and observe. Through the decades, however, conservationism has given way towards more aggressive forms of environmentalism, meaning to some extent the same political movement now occupies both the left and right, just in radically different forms. The Green Movement is often seen as a left-wing political position. The origins of the environmental movement lay just after the Industrial Revolution hit Britain. The emergence of factories and the immense growth in coal consumption gave rise to an unprecedented level of air pollution. It wasn't so much the environmental movement that stopped this, but the conservation movement, coming from the old landed gentry in Britain, who originally wanted to conserve. No doubt from their country manners, the landed gentry and upper middle class complained from further away than the working class who were involved, as the dark satanic mills peppered the landscape of England's green and pleasant land. The rapid population growth in Britain during this time had meant that man had spread out over the island, densifying the population no way seen yet on these islands. But really, the first political manifestations of the conservation movement was during wartime. During the Napoleonic War, Britain's only defence against Napoleon's Grand Army was the English Channel. Britannia really did rule the waves, but they still sailed in wooden ships. The early ecological idea was to preserve the growth of the delicate teak tree, which was the material Britain's ships were built from. Concerns over teak depletion were raised as early as 1799, and in 1805, when the navy was undergoing expansion during the Napoleonic Wars. The pressure led to the first formal conservation act, which prohibited the chopping down of small tea trees. The Romantic movement, both anti-enlightenment and a nostalgic one, was the real perfect starting point for the conservation movement. Following some of the horrors of progress and industrialization, it was the Romantics and its adherents during the 19th century who first started many of these societies and clubs which would dominate the day and would even carry on into modern times. The quote-unquote back-to-nature movement was advocated by intellectuals such as John Ruskin, William Morris, George Bernard Shaw and Edward Carpenter, who were all against consumerism, pollution and other activities that were harmful to the natural world. The environmental movement in the United States began in the late 19th century out of concerns for protecting the natural resources of the West, 
with individuals such as John Murr and Henry David Thoreau making key philosophical contributions. Thoreau published his thoughts in the book Walden, which argued that people should become intimately close with nature. While Murr came to believe in nature's inherent right, especially after spending time hiking in Yosemite Valley, he successfully lobbied Congress to form Yosemite National Park. In the 20th century, environmental ideas continued to grow in popularity and recognition. Efforts were starting to be made to save some wildlife, particularly the American bison. The death of the last passenger pigeon, as well as the endangerment of the American bison, helped to focus the minds of conservationists and popularise their concerns. And in 1916, the National Park Service was founded by US President Woodrow Wilson. The Forestry Commission was set up in 1919 in Britain to increase the amount of woodland in Britain by buying land for reforestation. By 1939, the Forestry Commission was the largest landowner in Britain. The second so-called Industrial Revolution, which focused on larger, more industrial forms of pollution rather than steam power, led to larger volumes of industrial chemical discharge added to the growing load of untreated human waste. The first modern environmental laws came in the form of Britain's Alkali Acts, passed in 1863 to regulate the air given off by the Liebling process, which was used to produce soda ash. An alkali inspector and four sub-inspectors were appointed to curb this pollution. The responsibilities of the inspectorate were gradually expanded, culminating in the Alkali Order of 1958, which placed all major heavy industries that emitted smoke, grit, dust and fumes under supervision. In industrial cities, local experts and reformers, especially after 1890, took the lead in identifying environmental degradation and pollution, and initiating grassroots movements to demand and achieve reforms. Typically, the highest priority went to water and air pollution. The Coal Smoke Abatement Society was formed in 1898, making it one of the oldest environmental NGOs. It was founded by artist Sir William Blake Richmond, frustrated with the pall cast by coal smoke. Although there were earlier pieces of legislation, the Public Health Act of 1875 required all furnaces and fireplaces to consume their own smoke. It also provided sanctions against factories that emitted large amounts of black smoke. The provisions of this law were extended in 1926 with the Smoke Abatement Act to include other emissions such as soot, ash and gritty particles and to empower local authorities to impose their own regulations. There was a decline in environmentalism and conservationism in the first half of the 20th century, with the two world wars taking precedence of course. However, once peace regained throughout Europe and most of the world in the 50s, 60s and 70s, environmentalism came back into the public fall. The advancement in photography was used to enhance public awareness of the need for protecting land and recruiting members to environmental organisations. 
Images taken by astronauts from space showing Earth in all its vulnerability, such as the iconic blue-pale dot photograph, was crucial in the re-emergence of environmentalism. In 1962, Silent Spring by American biologist Rachel Carson was published. The book showed the environmental impacts of the spraying of DDT in the United States. The book questioned the logic of releasing large amounts of chemicals into the environment without understanding their effects on human health. The book suggested that DDT and other pesticides may cause cancer and that their agricultural use was a threat to wildlife, particularly birds. The resulting public concern led to the creation of the United States' Environmental Protection Agency in 1970, which subsequently banned the use of DDT in the United States. The book's legacy was to produce a far greater awareness of environmental issues and interest into how people affect the environment. With this new interest in the environment came interest in problems such as the air pollution and oil spills. New pressure groups formed, notably Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. In the 1970s, the environmental movement gained rapid speed around the world as an outgrowth of the counter-culture movement. The world's first political parties to campaign on a predominantly environmental platform were United Tanzania Group and the Value Parties of New Zealand. The first Green Party in Europe was the Popular Movement for the Environment, founded in 1972 in the Swiss canton of Neuchâtel. The first national Green Party in Europe was People, founded in Britain in February 1973, which eventually turned into the Ecology Party and now the Green Party. Protection of the environment also became important in the developing world. The Chipko movement was formed in India under the influence of Mohandas Gandhi, and they set up peaceful resistance to deforestation by literally hugging trees, which is where today we get the phrase tree huggers. In 1979, James Lovelock, a British scientist, published Gaia, a new look at life on Earth which put forth the Gaia hypothesis. It proposes that life on Earth can be understood as a single organism. This became an important part of the deep green ideology. Throughout the rest of the history of the environmental movement, there has been a debate and argument between the more radical followers of this deep green ideology and more mainstream environmentalists. If there are three periods of environmentalism, the first is the original push in the 19th century after the first industrial revolution. It focused on conservationism and nostalgia, culminating in the Forestry Commission and the foundation of Yosemite National Park. The second wave is the post-Second World War period started by the hippie movement and the beginnings of the acknowledgement that environmentalism can be more than a narrow focus on smoke. It can look at other impacts on the environment, such as DDT. The second wave culminated with the establishment of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the beginnings of the green political movement. This changed into the third wave, the one we're currently in, 
is the spread of environmentalism into mainstream politics and life, with the acknowledgement that Earth does have finite resources and the beginnings of understanding into the larger scale environmental impact caused by humans. Which of course then gets us to climate change. I'm not going to go into that because frankly climate change doesn't really interest me. What I believe the fourth wave is really about is not so much that the climate is changing, is that we can use technology and industry to start to combat some of the effects of human interaction over the planet. Even small things like the beginning of mainstream recycling and reuse should be considered part of this fourth wave and it doesn't need to necessarily be a massive political ideology. It's more a spread of thought that's impacted everyone to some extent. Most people now will recycle. A move away from fossil fuels and towards electricity and hydrogen is also part of this fourth wave. Unlike the conservationists of old, people have generally started to understand that you can't live a life where potentially finite resources are being used up. Technologies, however, can make the planet a lot more friendly to the environment without massive overuse and better use of land. We're currently at the spot where the Holocene and the human intervention has not quite yet had a revolutionary impact on the environment, but we're seeing an increase in fish stocks being lost and some species beginning to die off. Nobody quite knows what could happen in the next 20 years. Climate modelling is imprecise. There may in the end, be nothing that happens. But with human population rise, there will still be a massive human impact increase. And if this isn't planned for, and if more houses aren't built, and more food isn't produced, which will have an effect on the wider environment, then who knows what could happen. So we've called environmentalism a great invention. An invention because it started to address some of mankind's impact on the world and the limits of industrialization. Pollution on the scale that once existed. You can imagine in the inner cities where everything was smoke and smog would not have been a great place to live, especially for humans. And so slowly the environmental movement has reduced some of the environmental impacts in the rich world. But things like coal still need to be mined. And in some places, coal is still burnt for electricity, which, like India, means the air pollution is still quite high. So the future is then green tech, technology that doesn't pollute and doesn't cause massive damage to humans and the environment. The current state of green tech looks like a battle between the European Union, the Chinese Communist Party, and American private enterprises. In 2016, renewable energies accounted for 17% of energy consumed by EU countries. In France, renewable energies already supplied 17% of domestic power. This rises to 39% in Germany, a country that powered forward in renewables since them stopping nuclear power in 2011. But Denmark is the leader, with 74% of its electricity generated from green sources. In solar power, Italy has made the lead, and for offshore wind, the United Kingdom stands top. 
while Europe as a whole sits at the top of the heap internationally when it comes to transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. The United Kingdom, of course, is not part of Europe anymore, but it's still a top-down approach to solving climate change. Investments peaked in clean energy in 2015 at $286 billion, double the amount invested in power plants running on coal and natural gas. However, despite huge progress, Europe is starting to lose ground to China. Asia is the continent that saw the fastest increase in its energy consumption over the past two decades. Energy use by ASEAN countries nearly doubled between 1995 in 2015. Fossil fuel energies accounted for 76% of their consumption, and this continued to increase every year. As by far the largest country now in Asia, China is setting records whenever new figures are released, the largest polluter and emitter of CO2s. But China also sets records in terms of investing in renewable energies. The country represents 16% of global investments. The country holds a massive lead in photovoltaic solar and wind. China produced 4% of its electricity from wind in 2017 and nearly 131 gigawatts of solar energy installed capacity. On top of that, China continues to consolidate its advantage. With over 50% of the world's additional solar capacity in 2017 coming solely from China. Despite seeming American recalcitrance in government-led initiatives to increase renewable energies, the renewable energy sectors in the United States are no means dead and actually prospering. The renewable energy sector has grown into a substantial market and now employs twice as many people, 370,000, over the coal industry, 160,000. Wind is on track to become the country's cheapest energy source and whilst renewables barely supply 10% of electricity on a national level, that figure climbs to 80% in California, economically the largest state. In addition, American companies are starting to spearhead innovations in this sector. For example, behemoths like Google and Apple have publicly set energy-saving targets. The two tech giants have promised to reach zero emissions in the near future. Some experts have even claimed that Google is already the world's largest buyer of renewable energy. In addition to recycling his rockets, Elon Musk is investing huge amounts in futuristic and clean projects. Tesla's electric cars and SolarCity's fields of solar panels have emerged as flagships of green tech in the United States. In the 21st century, environmentalism may become one of the key ideologies. As we've seen at the start of the 21st century, every year that goes by and the environment changes a little, with more deforestation, more pollution and more CO2 emissions, with more and more things needing to be produced to raise people out of poverty in Africa and the increasing populations, there needs to be new energy sources. Wind and water power gave way to coal, which gave way to oil and gas, to some extent nuclear, although nuclear never really caught on. But new green tech like geothermal and hydroelectric and things like this are really the future of power and energy. And this is to say nothing of the impact of hydrogen. 
But we're still a way off from that. We're still at the stage of installing basic solar panels. Elon Musk recently unveiled solar tile roofs. Not the type of solar panels you'd see on a roof, but an actual roof that has tiles. And it looks almost indistinguishable from a typical roof tiling. They look better, generate electricity, last longer and have better insulation and also cost less than a normal roof. It might take a while for these type of things to reach the mainstream, but it wouldn't surprise me to see this type of thing being installed on most places in the rich world. The growth of living walls, particularly on large open top buildings, is a garden on a roof. Aside from being aesthetically pleasing, Roof gardens and walls have a huge rate of benefits. These include absorbing heat, carbon dioxide and rainwater, and to provide insulation. They also conserve energy, providing a natural habitat for animals in an otherwise desolate urban location. You can certainly imagine the beauty in a city filled with living walls around the side and on the top of buildings, and be able to change the environment with animal species that live in the urban environment. The Hanging Gardens of Manhattan, perhaps. The human population is going to continue to grow from 7 billion now to 8 and then to 9 and perhaps even more. At present there is enough food for everybody on the planet and the only reason for famine is drought, politics or logistics. But increasing populations could place a strain on certain parts of the environment. Increasing urbanisation is leading to much farmland being built on and could create a whole plethora of problems. The solution, however, may actually lie within densely populated cities. Vertical farming or indoor farming has an amazing array of environmentally friendly benefits. It significantly reduces the use of fuel. It would get food easier to where it needs to go. It eliminates agricultural runoff, reduces the use of water and pesticides, and can produce crops all year round. It is also effective in utilising empty buildings, which there must be hundreds of thousands of, especially now in the developed world with post-industrialisation. In the future, there will be microwaves to produce more electricity. The amount of energy in the world produced but not able to be harnessed is a great untapped resource. Imagine if just some of the world oceans could be used for tidal power and the amount of electricity this could produce. But even smaller things, like the fabrics you use, could be one way. Developed at the Georgia Institute of Technology, smart fabric is thin, flexible, and generates electricity as it moves. This could be used to monitor health indicators, but it could also charge small electronic devices. You could literally run for a mile or two, you know, and produce enough energy to charge your phone for a little bit. This could be incredibly useful for all types of people in the future. Nobody knows how long it will take, and researchers always say with these new materials it will be a couple of years, but it always tends to be longer. The environmental movement will have a huge impact on the design of cities in the future, as it's where most people will start to live. As populations densify, people will want to move into the most economically prosperous cities. Many places are starting with green tech cities. 
to create sustainable and environmentally friendly cities. Some say the future is the pure eco-city, but what is an eco-city? The following criteria is often put forward. A city that operates on a self-sustained economy, and most resources needed are found locally. It has a completely carbon-neutral and renewable energy production, has a well-planned city layout and public transportation system that makes the priority methods of transportation as follows possible. Walking first, then cycling, and then public transportation. Resource conservation, which maximises efficiency of water and energy sources. Constructing a waste management system that can recycle waste and reuse it. Creating a zero waste system. And a city that supports local agriculture and produce. To me, the most important things will be maintaining the joy of living in a city. In many ways, some of this is too idealistic. Cities are not going to be retorn up in much of the West to plan out new and more rational ways of getting around. Public transportation systems will always be able to be better. And repurposing much of cities away from the automobile and towards cycling is going to be a lot more difficult. Public transportation will need to provide much of the backbone of future cities. Some places will have natural energy production, but if a city lies on a natural geothermal well, this could be majorly beneficial, or near a coast where tidal electricity could be used. So some cities may still need to import electricity, especially if it's cheap for them to do so, and they can focus on other elements of future cities. This is of course very vague, and eco-cities need to be more reflective of where they live. The International Eco-Cities Initiative identified as many as 178 significant eco-city initiatives at different stages of planning and development and implementation around the world. To be included in this census, initiatives needed to be at least district-wide in their scale to cover a variety of sectors and have official policy status. Although such schemes display great variety in their ambitions, scale and concepts since the late 2000s, there has been a proliferation of indicators as to what makes a smart city. This suggests that a process of de facto eco-city standardisation is underway. At some point in the near future of the fourth wave of environmentalism, we will start to see the true building of eco-cities, as all this technology we've been talking about will join together to change and mesh the nature of the city and the way we live. So why is environmentalism and conservationism on my list? Well, without it, I truly do think many parts of the environment would be destroyed. The natural landscape would just be built on, as suburbs would spread throughout all parts of the cities. And you've really got to be smarter with what limited space you have. Future cities will change with new technologies. These will fundamentally change the way we live and work. From massive immigration into cities and then out of cities, the building and destroying of industrialization, to changing the landscape irreparably, and the huge amounts of resources we're taking from the environment, and starting to make impacts on the environment. The need to look after and preserve the environment is growing all the time.
The change from the early 19th century idea of conservation as protecting England's green and pleasant lands to shifting to more proactive forms of environmental protection could prove crucial in the future of the Earth, with all the possible future changes that could happen to the natural environment. The invention of environmentalism and the conservation movements could prove to be one of humanity's greatest. If much of the natural landscape can be kept as it is, with the huge population rises, as cities get denser and denser. If not, it will create a migratory period, not seen since the late Roman Empire, and millions of refugees from some places through war, famine and poverty will start to want to move. There is no doubt much of the environmental movement goes too far. The idea that the environment will somehow turn into a movie, like the day after tomorrow, is just absurd. The climate does always change, and it might not be anywhere near as bad as what people say. The Malthusian problem is essentially at the root, how many people can the Earth support? Some places like Britain have always managed to accommodate the population, but in some places like India, Bangladesh, China, famines are a very natural part of history. But of course it shouldn't be that way, and there should be enough food for everybody all year round. But this is going to prove one of the greatest challenges coming in the 21st century. The conservation movement was a fringe idea, but now you could say it is one of the predominant ideas in the West. Green and sustainability concerns, however silly and over-egged they may be, are now part of everyday mainstream life. Governments have now been persuaded and are keen to pursue an environmental agenda. They seem to have fallen, many of them, for the claims of the more alarmist environmentalists. But I think, like most things, politics will never be as effective as people think. But humans will get more sustainable and better at using renewable energies, which to me should be the whole point. And so, for all those reasons, the environmental movement is listed in number 92 in my list of the greatest inventions of all time.